such a ready habit, it doesn't really work because that visitor finds a way to announce its presence again. Maybe it comes in the window or it comes down the chimney or something. It says, I'm here. So I often think of some of the, the whole skill set of meditation as being, first of all, discovering who is really at home, who lives here. Underneath the habits and the, the conditioning and so on, who is it, actually? And knowing what to do when we hear that knock at the door, because we will. How can we relate to the arrival of this visitor with great awareness, with clarity, with wisdom, with love, with compassion? That's really the, the learning. It's almost like, um, it is like a skill set, actually, because that knock will keep coming. So how are we going to be with all of that is, is a very important question. I once suggested here, you know, um, well, maybe when we hear that knock, uh, we could open the door and recognize, you know, acknowledge whoever's visiting and let them come in maybe for a cup of tea, keeping an eye on them, you know, but not, not having a lot of hostility, like, oh, no. And somebody uh, in the room didn't like that, and, and they called out, how about tea to go? <laughs> and I said, okay, maybe tea to go, you know. But there's something in there in meeting all of those visitors that's really very important for us. So that's the first visionary statement of the Buddhas. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. They're not who we really are. And then the other, I think, um, came up a little bit in the questions this afternoon uh, from what Gina said. You know, um, when the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering in the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering in the end of suffering. And this, of course, is the kind of thing that has given the Buddhist teaching the reputation of being quite pessimistic and depressing and you know, very down and always harping on suffering. And um, It's interesting, some years ago I was reading uh, the New Yorker magazine uh, because there was an article in there about Buddhism. And in the article, according to the author of the article, he said, according to the Buddha, the purpose of life is to suffer. <laughs> and I thought, oh, sign me up for that. You know, that looks really appealing. You know, the purpose of life is to suffer. And actually, it's interesting. In, in Buddhism, suffering itself is not redemptive. It's not the point. Um, it's how we relate to the suffering and to the joy and to the neutrality of our lives. The more openness, the more compassion, uh, the more clarity, the more presence we can bring, the more it actually serves us in some way. Um, but the point is not to suffer. And the Buddha didn't just say, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering. He said, suffering and the end of suffering. And those are used, that understanding is used in a lot of different ways. One, of course, is to point out our human potential. For in the very things of life, with getting what we want not and all the changes and so on, still coming to a place of freedom. It also is used as a way of saying, you know, you don't really come to the end of suffering until you look at suffering, that there's an openness or a truthfulness in that, there's a power in that, there's a, a clarity in that that needs to happen to come to the end of suffering. It's not like a detour, you know. Um, they're very connected, and then it's also used, and this is the way it, it is kind of pertinent to the conversation about the hindrances, it's used, uh, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering, as a way of, it's almost like forming a, um, a grid or a, a perspective so that, for example, if we are looking at our own fear and shame and greed, all those visitors, 
what would it be like if we didn't call them bad and wrong or terrible, if we didn't call ourselves terrible for the experience of them, but we saw them as states of suffering? It would be pretty different for most of us. You know, instead of the rejection and the disdain and the uh, kind of cutting off, um, there would be a different relationship because of the compassion that would arise in seeing them as states of suffering. And in the same way, we can celebrate all those things that arise that are about the end of suffering, all those times we let go, or we find a, a quality of generosity or kindness or patience or forgiveness, even the small ways. You know, it's remarkable the resiliency of the human spirit. We can celebrate that as moments that are expressive of the end of suffering right there in life, in whatever it's presenting us. So that's also an important um, way of, of looking at our experience. So with those two, understanding the transitory nature, the visiting nature of these states, and understanding that they are suffering. And that doesn't mean that when they arise, they're suffering. When we are lost in them, when we are defined by them, when we're overwhelmed by them, it is a state of great suffering. Uh, The word in Pali is kalesa. In Sanskrit, it's kalesha. It's very conventionally, um, in an old-fashioned sort of way, translated as defilement. Um, That's such a pejorative-sounding word. I think uh, better, actually, is the the literal translation of kalesa, which is torment of the mind. And this is something most of us can get behind, you know, when we are overcome by guilt or rumination or anxiety or one of these states. It is a kind of torment, you know. And, and uh, it's, it's almost cruel to judge oneself for that rather than to have the, the compassion that it, that it warrants. So all that said, um, there are these five states that so commonly arise in our meditation because they do commonly arise um, in our lives. And it's not to say they are bad or wrong or terrible or we are terrible people for their even very frequent arising, um, but they are very important to understand. First of all, they're the kinds of states that tend to become habitual so that without thinking, without perhaps a good degree of sensitivity, we're just there. You know, we are reacting from one of these states. Um, They can be very, very confusing. When lost in them, they may have us forget a lot. They may have us distort reality a lot. They might have us um, forget who actually lives here. We may overlook something like the truth of change because we're so enmeshed in one of these states. They're very powerful, actually. Many teachings will talk about, if not um, some good to be found within them, then a purified form of them, which is also interesting. You know, what is it that makes a certain state a real hindrance to our development, to our uh, deepening of concentration, our um, deepening of love and compassion on the one side, or uh, what is it about it that is actually useful on the other side? And so that's why I really consider it an exploration. The five hindrances, I'm sure you're familiar with one way or another, uh, theoretically or practically, are uh, greed or grasping, which is the first one, Um, The second is aversion, which is anger and fear. Third is sleepiness or sloth. And then restlessness and worry. And then the last is doubt. And I'll go through them uh, one by one. So it's grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And I, for one, when I was first practicing in India um, in the early 70s, was always glad to hear this teaching because, first of all, I thought, it's not just me. And then I thought, isn't this interesting? You know, this is like a a map of the mind that the Buddha laid out 2,500 years ago in a completely other 
time and place. And it's what I was having going on today. Isn't it interesting? In just these ways. Um, They are states that do appear a lot in our lives. And so here they are. Sometimes they come up one by one. Sometimes they kind of come together in what we sometimes call a multiple hindrance attack. You know, there are lots of forms of this, and uh, sometimes someone has a favorite hindrance, you know, which is, um, it's like this morning I was really, uh, as I told some of you in the group, so I was kind of amused to hear Joseph talk about restlessness because I don't get that much restlessness. I get an enormous amount of sleepiness compared to how much restlessness I get. And so I was listening to him, I thought, wow, you know. It sounds kind of cool, running around the monastery, you know? Like, it's interesting. Anyway, better than falling asleep all the time, you know? Um, you know, so sometimes we do have uh, tendencies that are, are um, more in one direction than another. So um, although nothing is fixed, it, it is a very interesting exploration. So um, even though that is the usual order, grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, I think I'll start with doubt. Because I think it um, is extremely powerful. And looking at it exemplifies some of the kind of complexities of these states, because it's not all bad. Um, In the uh, Buddhist teaching, and that perspective, doubt in some ways is really highly prized. You know, there's a lot of praise for a faculty of doubt. When, as um, I think Joseph said, uh, maybe even the first night here together, he said, you know, when the Buddha said, don't believe anything. Um, And he's very famous for having said that. Don't believe anything. Don't believe anything because I say it as the Buddha. Don't believe anything because uh, an elder has said it, don't believe anything because you've read it in a book. He said, put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. Put it into practice. See for yourself. And I've always thought that was the most amazingly inclusive statement because he wasn't saying, well, a couple of you can figure out what's true for yourself and the rest of you have to believe me because you don't have that capacity, you don't have the potential wasn't that at all. He said, everybody has this kind of capacity to understand a deeper truth of life all by themselves. But you have to put something into practice. You know, it's not, it's not that easy. When we do practice, when we look, when we um, almost insist on our right and ability to know the truth for ourselves, and we question, and we wonder, and we doubt, and we examine and we investigate, that's a great kind of doubt. Because it's not doubting ourselves and that capacity. It's the kind of doubt that allows us to experiment and take a risk and try things out, and all the time trusting our ability to know. But it's not standing aside, stepping back, just judging something from a distance, saying, well, it's probably not worth it. But really being willing to check it out, to immerse ourselves, to come close to an experience, all the while knowing we have the ability to make that kind of decision. So that's a really healthy and important kind of doubt. And in some ways, um, in the Buddhist teaching, that kind of doubt is said to be the very thing that deepens faith, to be more than just something we get... um, from somebody else, you know, the presence of someone else or uh, something from the outside. It's when we really put something into practice and we investigate and we wonder and we question. That's when it becomes our own. That's when our faith becomes much deeper and much more real. So that's all really good. There's another kind of doubt or another aspect of doubt which is called skeptical doubt, which is different. And that's more the doubt of cynicism or pulling away from a process, not really trying it out for ourselves, but kind of disdaining it from afar or being stuck. You know, those, those ways where we're so afraid of making a mistake or 
uh, we want to know the end of the story right now, and so we can't take the next step very easily, and we're just going back and forth and back and forth. I don't know what to do. Um, that's the kind of doubt that often is really a sign that we don't trust ourselves, you know, that we don't have that belief in our own capacity to understand life. And so uh, we're just stuck, and we're separating from the very thing that might give us the answers if we would go into it. So that's a very painful state, and that's the state that is really talked about as doubt as a hindrance. Um, My favorite story of that actually is from the time of the Buddha, as I'm sure you know, they say the, the Buddha was enlightened sitting under a tree. And he spent the next 49 days in the immediate vicinity of that tree after his enlightenment, doing seven days of walking meditation and seven days of happily contemplating something or other, and you know, seven days of um, doing these different things, seven things, seven days each. And then at the end of the... 49 days, he got up and started walking to a nearby town. So it said the first person he encountered was someone that was so struck by his radiance. I mean, here he is just 49 days after his full and complete enlightenment. And this man was just overcome by how beautiful he looked, you know, and he said, who are you? What are you? Are you a human being, or are you a celestial being, a divine being? Who are you? And the Buddha is said to have responded with, I am awake. I'm an awakened one. And the man said, eh, maybe, and he walked away. (laughs) So I, as though you didn't know, am from New York (laughs) City, (laughs) and there's something in me that kind of likes that, eh, maybe, you know, like, why believe that? That is an outrageous thing to say, you know? I am awake. Like, what does that mean? But what if he hadn't walked away? You know, what if he had stayed and asked some more questions? Like, what does it mean to be awake? Can anybody awaken? Can I do that? Is there a way? Is there a path? Maybe I'll check it out. Maybe I'll put it into practice. Maybe I'll see for myself. Myself, that would have been a very different kind of doubt. You know, so that sort of walk-away doubt that's just so dismissive, it's like we're already defeated because we're not willing to give ourselves and some process a chance. That's the destructive kind of doubt. You know, that's the doubt as a hindrance. Um, And because it comes in the voice of wisdom, doubt doesn't usually arise in our meditation like, I am doubt, you know. It says, this is the craziest thing you've ever done. You should find the next bus out of Worcester you know, or whatever it is. It comes as though it were imparting great truth. Um, And sometimes it is imparting great truth, you know, but we need to be able to stay with the discomfort of the feeling long enough to see which kind of doubt it is Um, and not just, you know, pack up and go to Worcester at the first moment that it arises, which is our tendency, you know, to believe it so utterly. So... The really critical thing is to be able to see doubt as doubt, to see it for what it is. It's visiting. To recognize it, to understand it, not to condemn it you know, or dismiss it out of hand, but to hang in there with it, to give a little time to the process to see what mindfulness might reveal from that doubt. And then we'll know which kind it is. And so that is really a model for all of these hindrances. It's not to condemn them. It's not to condemn ourselves for them. It's not to try to hastily get rid of them. But it's also not to just dive into them and have them overwhelm us, which is what normally happens in life. You know, the whole uh, stage is set here for our being able to be present with all of these states. We don't have to react because we have the time. We have the space. We're protected. We can take an interest in them. We can learn from them. We can learn about ourselves in them. We can learn compassion for ourselves in them. 
And so that really becomes our practice. We try to find this middle place between rushing into the state and pushing it away. So we are with it fully, completely, and honestly, knowing what it is as best we can, and yet there's a kind of spaciousness because we're paying attention. So that's the the hindrance of doubt. The first hindrance in the list, as it's usually discussed, is um, grasping or greed or clinging, you know, different ways of saying it. And this isn't the same thing as wanting something, you know, even wanting it badly. It isn't the same thing as aspiration, as um, daring to imagine or uh, having a boldness, a vision, really wanting. It's not the same thing. It's more about holding on. Well, it's two things, really. One is a kind of incessant incessant wanting. Um, where those of you who uh, live in New York City and may have found yourself driving up the West Side Highway lately know that there are these billboards now that are up there for a car, and all the billboard has is the image of the car and one word, crave. That's the name of the car, crave. And there have been so many times lately when I've been going up the West Side Highway and I just see it. And by the end, like by the George Washington Bridge, I really want that car. <laughs> I think, I need that car, you know? It's just like crave, crave, crave. That's how it is, right? We get that message all the time. If you had this, you'd be perfectly happy. If you had that, it would never change. If you had that, you'd be complete. And if you had that, you know, and it's just like this constant bombardment um, all of the time. And so that's one meaning of this kind of desire or craving or greed as a hindrance. You know, when it's incessant and it's just, um, we don't even know what it is anymore that we want. We just know that we have to have something we don't have and, It's very conditioned. It's very entrained. And one of the uh, great aspects of meditation is actually being able to stop that for a little while and really pay attention, first of all, to what we do have and how complete we may be without that new car. And also to uh, be very attuned to the truth of constant change just the movement of life because the other aspect of clinging or grasping as a hindrance is the sense that if we can hold on tightly enough, we can be in control. We can keep life from moving. We can keep a person from changing. We can keep uh, anything from falling apart, transitioning. But of course, you know, we know really when we look, it's not like that. I once um, was here teaching one fall, and it happened to be like a beautiful, glorious, fantastic autumn. And I was walking every day, you know, around and uh, looking at those beautiful, amazing leaves on the trees. And I had a friend from California, who called me up, and she'd never even been to the East Coast. So from my point of view, she'd never seen, like, a real autumn. And she told me she was coming to visit. So then I noticed that every day when I would walk and I would look at those really beautiful leaves on the trees, I would think, you better stay there on those trees because (laughs) she's coming from California. She's never seen anything like this. You know, if she comes and everything's already on the ground, it's not going to be that great. So I just would look at them balefully and think, you better stay on those trees. (laughs) And then I'd walk the next day, and I'd have exactly the same thought. And then the next day, and I'd have the same thought. And then one day she called me up, and she said, you know, something's come up, and I'm not going to be able to come. And one of my first feelings was almost a kind of relief. I thought, oh, Now I can let the leaves fall from the trees, you know? It's like, wow, great. You know, and how often do we do that in some really peculiar way? 
And the Buddha talked about it in a very homey sort of way, as he sometimes did. He said, if you try to hold on to that which must inevitably change, it's like holding on tightly to a revolving wheel. At some point in the cycle, you are bound to get run over. You know, and we do that. But that doesn't mean like we withdraw in a kind of apathy or um, a, a sense of not caring, not engaging, not, not loving life. It's not like that. Because um, that holding on is a very particular thing that we do that's out of a, a kind of fruitless desire that this time there won't be change. Whereas really, if we wanted to be happy... I think it would have much more to do with being in harmony with how things are rather than standing apart from them and, and fighting them and being so bitter because of the truth of how things are. So that's the hindrance of grasping or wanting, and we see it quite a lot in meditation practice. You know, you sit there and you think, if only I had brought another t shirt. This would be the perfect retreat, <laughs> you know. If only, or one of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher, describes it very well. He says, let's say you live in New York City, and you want to have the perfect, serene, pleasant meditation. You know, so first of all, you can't sit in your apartment because it's too noisy, right? So you've got to move into the closet for your meditation, and then you hear the pipes, and that's very frustrating. So you go out and you buy those um, like ear things that airport personnel wear and tarmac. You know, so you're sitting there with your things on, and you've like smoothed out the cushion so like nothing's folded, nothing's rubbing against you, and maybe you're burning some incense, and it's also lovely, and everything is perfect. And then you have a memory, and it's really bad. And you just hate it. You know, wouldn't it be better to learn a kind of balance all along the way? So first of all, you're not living in your closet. You're not, you know, freaked out at every noise. Um, You know, that kind of wanting, it doesn't make any sense given how things actually are and given how much potential there is for happiness apart from kind of the having or the acquiring Um, you know, which we are taught it's limited to. And so we see it so much in our meditation, and it's a tremendous opportunity um, to see through it as well. And then the uh, next of the hindrances is aversion, which is anger and fear, um, which in the Buddhist psychology are considered the same mind state in two different forms, anger being energized, Um, expressive, outflowing, fear being held in, frozen, imploding. Um, But the same state of like wanting to strike out against what's happening, declare it to be untrue or whatever. And here too, you know, there are some very clear, very positive things about anger. You know, we know that it's energizing. It's not passive. It's not complacent. It allows us to say no. It allows us to take a stand. Sometimes... There's a lot of courage in the anger. Sometimes it's the angry person in the room who's the only one willing to speak the truth or name something no one else wants to name. And, you know, there is all of that, um, absolutely. And there is also, like, the burning and the distortion and the lack of options and the closing down. And um, in the Buddhist psychology, anger is likened to a forest fire which burns up its own support. It can leave us devastated. Um, without a way of going on because it's so consuming. Um, It can kill us. And like a forest fire, it can burn really wild. We might end up in a place we actually don't want to be. So the question becomes, how can we capture that energy and what's positive without getting caught in the kind of swirling that can be so devastating and leave us with no nourishment in so many substantial ways. And there's a quality. um, We probably all know people for whom uh, it's just become a habit. 
like nothing's ever right, nothing's ever good enough, nothing is satisfying, and it's so sad, really, because sometimes they're the, the very people you want to reach out to in some way and move closer to, but it's hard in that vortex. Um, you know, a feeling that everything you do is wrong and that it, it will never be enough. Or uh, There are ways in which we fall into a kind of perpetual self-blame, you know, where we cease to see that things come together, you know, through a whole lot of conditions coming together. It's not all about me and the mistake I made and the fault I've evidenced. And, um, you know, some things are out of our control. And we have to look at what we may have contributed to a situation, but at the same time, we're not in charge of the whole unfolding of the universe. You know, and so what is that kind of habit of just being angry at ourselves all the time? And and how limiting is it? And how real is it? Or how unreal is it? And often when I'm uh, trying to talk about that state as a hindrance, um, I talk about this time, it was quite a long time ago now, where I had first started using email. Um, actually, Joseph got emailed before I did. And I used to use his computer, and somebody wrote to me and said, well, you know, it's like using someone else's stationery. <laughs> Why are you doing that? Get your own. I thought, oh, yeah. Um, so one day I was sitting at home using this new desktop computer and working on some project, and... Somebody sent me some email. I went online and somebody sent me some email. And he said in the email, um, I don't understand what the problem is with getting lost in anger. Now, that doesn't mean feeling anger. You know, so I'm really trying to make that distinction. It's not a question of what we're feeling. It's a question of getting subsumed in it, okay? So he said, I don't understand what the problem is. So I wrote back and I said, well, one of the problems with getting lost in a state of anger is that um, we then tend to put people in a box. And then I got offline and I went back to my project and something went terribly wrong in the relationship between my computer and my printer and I got really angry. And the first person I got angry at was what we would now call our IT person, (laughs) Um, but we didn't have a phrase for it then. Um, who was on vacation in Hawaii, and I was furious. I thought, how could he be in Hawaii when I need him? He's never here when I need him. But in the force of that anger, it's like I forgot that this is a true story. The reason he was in Hawaii was because I had decided he needed a vacation. (laughs) And I went to the airport, and I used my frequent flyer miles to get him a ticket to Hawaii. It's like I forgot because I was so angry that he wasn't there. And then the next person I was really angry at was myself. You know, why can't you be the kind of person who can fix these kind of things? You're so inept. You're such a klutz. Why can't you do it? I was pulling out plugs and pushing in other plugs, and somehow I fixed it. But I was so angry at myself, that image of myself as incompetent, that I hardly even noticed that I fixed it, you know, with, with some kind of joy or gratitude. So I fixed it, and I got back up on my chair, and I went back to to finishing my project. And at some point, I went back online, and there was my original correspondent saying, I don't understand what you mean by saying the problem with anger is that we sometimes put people in a box. So I wrote to him, and I said, well, this is what I just did. You know, I put this other person in a box as all bad forevermore, the great betrayer, always will be. And I put myself in a box. You are so limited, you're so stupid, you can't fix anything. And so it's kind of in that nature that we want to really deeply understand that quality. You know, it's not to dislike it or dislike ourselves for it, um, but it's to really understand it. And with both these, grasping and aversion, the understanding comes from awareness. And one of the initial challenges we have is to not be so entranced with the object of the feeling 
and turn our attention to the feeling itself. You know, it's like if we really want that new car, we spend our time most likely ruminating, like, should I get that kind of steering or that kind of steering or that kind of upholstery or those kind of tires? It's not that common that we turn our attention to what does it feel like to want something so much? To turn our attention to the desire itself, to come to understand it. When we're really angry, we more likely spend time relishing either thoughts of revenge, you know, or dislike of ourselves or fear of the state, something like that, rather than looking almost nakedly, what is anger? What is it? What is this feeling? So we don't have to run from it, and we also, in that moment, can have a a quality of mindfulness toward it. And that really is our challenge. And then the last two hindrances, um, or the middle two, if there's grasping aversion, is sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. And sleepiness and restlessness are, you know, obviously the energetic opposites. And sleepiness, my favorite, can come uh, for many different reasons. It may be that you're really tired. You know, a lot of people come here and they're so tired. And we don't even know how tired we are until we actually stop and pay attention. So I wouldn't discount that possibility. Sometimes sleepiness arises because it's a habit. Um, If something difficult is starting to emerge in our consciousness, I think, I'll just take a nap. You know, it's just become a habit. It's very comforting. It's like a cocoon. We can just sort of wrap ourselves in that. uh, It's almost like numbness, you know, and uh, that feeling of sleepiness. We don't have to be with whatever difficult thing was arising Sometimes sleepiness comes because um, basically we're bored. And this is um, building upon what has been said before in this retreat. So much of what we experience in life in any moment is pleasant, so much is unpleasant, and a lot of it is neutral. It's not strikingly pleasant or unpleasant, and mostly our attention is not trained to subtlety. We really need intensity in order to wake up and feel alive. Even intense pain would do, let alone intense pleasure. And so we're constantly seeking stimulation. And it's just, you know, it's it's conditioning, really. And so when something's just kind of ordinary, like a sip of water, a breath, an apple, if you've eaten 10 million of them before, a sound, we go to sleep. Because it, it's not, uh, there's not enough juice, you know, there's not enough intensity to wake us up. Um, so it's a very interesting thing to look at neutral experience and see how much of our day we can be disconnected from or tuned out from um, just because it's in that neutral range. And here the Buddha said, one who practices uh, heedfulness or mindfulness is on the path to the deathless, whereas one who is heedless or one who is mindless is as if dead already. You think about how many moments of our day we are just not there. And we just go to sleep, in effect. And then the last reason I'll talk about for sleepiness to arise um, is is really that balance question when uh, maybe we're developing a greater depth of concentration and calm and tranquility, but there's not enough energy in our system to match. The first thing that happens is this really dreamy, drifty state, which is known as sinking mind, where you just kind of, I call it the ooze, you're just kind of oozing along, you know, for a good long time, and, and then you fall asleep in meditating. And it's not a bad state at all because uh, it does mean a depth of tranquility is happening. It's just not in balance. There's just not enough energy. Um, And one of the reasons that a more 
active practice like mental noting or the loving kindness practice is good is because it highlights that imbalance when it happens. I saw when I was doing breath meditation, I could ooze along for a good long time before I realized it. But what happens in the loving kindness practice is that the phrases will actually get garbled if you're in that state of not enough energy. So like I'd be sitting in Burma, which is where I first did that practice intensively, and I would hear myself saying, may you be filled with suffering, may you be filled, and I'd go, no, you know, may you be free of suffering, may you be free of suffering, or may I fall asleep, may I think, no, and it's just like, you know, and so it's good, because it shows us, and the challenge with all of those states, and maybe the instruction tomorrow will cover it, is, you know, again, it's not to hate it or um, declare it an enemy, but it's first to use mindfulness to recognize it, and see through it, and also to learn how to bring it into balance in different ways. So how can we pick up our energy without losing the tranquility? could be as simple as opening your eyes or standing up or using attention in, in different ways, which I think we will talk about tomorrow morning, um, to just pick up energy. And then restlessness is the opposite issue, where there's a lot of energy... And that's the very positive part of it, but it may not be so grounded. It's not easily channeled. It's not balanced with enough calm or tranquility, so the energy can get really wild. There is that physical restlessness, I'm told, um, where uh, people just have... It's not that I never get restless. Let's make this you know, honest, but uh, it's not as common as sleepiness for me. Um, you know, and I have friends who have told me, I have one friend who told me she was sitting in uh, Sri Lanka in a hall about this size, all alone. And she would sit like in that corner and she got so restless. She just had to like stand up, pick up all her stuff, move to the back corner, sit down. It's all alone in the hall. Sat down, like two minutes later, she had to stand up, move to the other end. You know, it can be really wild. Um, and sometimes it's not physical, it's emotional or it's mental. Um, it's a very wild kind of restlessness that propels us into the future. And we plan, and we plan, and we plan, and we plan. It's almost as though there's this feeling like if we only plan something through enough, that it will be secure. We'll get it to happen, so we just do it again and again and again. And again. But it's so restless, it's so agitated. Or sometimes it's not looking forward, it's looking back, where uh, there are times in meditation practice as a, a purification process where we just remember these things, um, actions that we've done that were hurtful to somebody or things we said, or maybe it was a time where we now feel we should have spoken out, but we were much too timid we're just filled with regret. And there's so much of that as well. It just happens as, as part of this kind of cleansing. And um, there's a way of being with these things that allows us to feel the pain of them, but also let go and move on. So that, um, I think it's reflected in this very beautiful quotation from the Buddha when he said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And so many times when we remember the harm we've caused, we also feel into, we remember the lack of loving ourselves that propelled it. And it hurts, genuinely. But to feel it, to acknowledge the pain, to have the energy to move on with some sense of possibility and even determination not to just do that again, is really positive, it's really wholesome to just go round and round and round and round, you know, the thing we did or the thing we said with a kind of lacerating self-hatred just leaves us exhausted, and that's the restlessness. We just go over it and over it and over it. Um, it's like my favorite story of that actually has to do with Joseph, um, where uh, we had gone... 
to Burma together one year to practice and the way that um, meditation interviews were done in Burma would be like the teacher would be sitting up in front of you know his room and uh, you come up and talk to him about your meditation and then the person who was behind you um, in the rotation would wait in the back of the room and thereby hear your whole thing you know and then when it was their turn they'd come up front and you know you'd leave and then someone else would come so Joseph was just ahead of me for three months uh, so I got to hear his entire you know process of meditation for three months which was very interesting <laughs> and uh, sometimes more interesting than my own um, and one day I felt you know waiting in the back of the room and hearing him talk to our uh, Burmese meditation teacher, whose name is Saira Upandita, I thought Joseph seemed kind of down, you know, like a little, there was some sort of despondency or something in his voice. And and what he said to, to Upandita was something like, um, I had a memory while I was sitting, and it was something really bad that I did, like, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years before, something like that. And it's really painful to remember. And Upandita, in response, basically said what I just said, you know, in some form. Um, you know, you can feel the pain of it, but then you need to let go and move on with um, a sense of possibility. If you get stuck there, it's just a form of restlessness and guilt. And uh, But that whole time I was sitting in the back of the room and I was thinking, I wonder what he did. <laughs> it sounds really bad. And he would have been really young, too. I don't know. What did he do? But we were on this silent retreat for three months, so I couldn't ask him. So at the end of three months, we happened to leave Burma together on the same day, and we flew to Thailand, and we were having dinner that night, and I said, by the way, <laughs> remember that day when you were talking to Upandita and you sounded really down about something you'd done when you were like 16 or 17 years old, you know, like, what'd you do? <laughs> and he said, oh, you know, there was a girl in my class or something who was having a sweet 16 party, and I didn't really feel like going, so I didn't go. And then it turned out that not many people went, and, and she was really devastated. So like 25 years later, out of nowhere, it just comes up, right? So I told this story one year. Joseph and I were teaching together in California. Um, and I told the story as an example of that kind of restlessness and how we have to, even though we feel the pain, you know, we need to let go and, and move on. And it happened to be my birthday. And the staff of the center gave me a party that night. And Joseph came and he said, I didn't really feel like coming. <laughs> I said, I'm really tired, but... I figured in 20 years, you know, I'll be sitting somewhere minding my own business and then just this thing will come up. So I like that story. So there we have them, grasping aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Um, we have the kind of universal way of working with whatever comes up in our experience which is to greet that visitor, knowing it's a visitor to the best of our ability, bringing the force of awareness and compassion to bear as we see it, trying to understand it, but not in the usual way. Um, it's a sort of silent analysis because we have a relationship with it. We're not declaring it the enemy. We're also not getting lost in it. That's how we can learn from it, whatever it might be. And then we also have the particular ways in which, um, certainly with sleepiness and restlessness, which um, appear so much in day-to-day uh, -day practice, where we try to bring them into balance so that we can uh, more readily have uh, that process of mindfulness with whatever comes our way. So let's sit together for just a few minutes. And then, as I said, um, probably tomorrow morning, some more discussion about sleepiness and restlessness and working with them can happen. So in the meantime, should you have any, uh, there is mindfulness, which is really 
It's like the universal antidote. It means acknowledging what the experience is and feeling that relationship where you're with it, not lost in it, not pushing it away. And when you lose that particular relationship, you begin again. That's all. Okay, let's sit together. Thank you. We'll uh, walk for about half an hour, come back for the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.